This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Great to have you here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas to me so you can save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. By the way, somebody's trying to get in your wallet, whatever. Do you know we have free off-the-air advice for you? It's available over 40 hours each week. And you can call in, talk with a member of Team Clark, get an answer to your question, concern, or get guidance. The phone number hours available each weekday listed on the home screen of Clark.com. Scroll down a little on your phone or your laptop and you'll see the number and hours. Coming up in just a little while, we'll talk about something that should be private that is constantly being breached, and that's what money you got. I'm going to tell you about that in today's Clark Rage. And later, just because you can doesn't mean you should borrow against the value of your home. I want to talk right now about a trend that is maybe your friend and can be your foe and you got to know the trends occurring in the marketplace this came up with one of our staffers on the clark team that they uh, supposedly before they worked on the clark team they were texted about a job opportunity and didn't know whether it was a scam or not. And the thing is, I know this is just weird beyond weird, but there are any of a number of employers now that instead of emailing about a job, instead of using LinkedIn, whatever, they are sending out texts to prospects. Don't know how exactly they find their way to you. And the text they'll send will be something along the lines trying to see if you're interested in interviewing for a job. And if you respond, the weird thing is that with a lot of the larger employers, a human is not sending or responding to the text that you send back. They are first being read by uh, machines, using various levels of sophistication of artificial intelligence and the responses may be a bit gibberishy but they're trying to decide first gauge your interest and second if you are someone who may be appropriate for a job they have available and that's the point at which the text may be taken over by an actual human isn't this all weird now There are people who find jobs a number of different ways, including potentially through text. But I believe that often the best opportunities are found where people hire people, where someone knows of you 
and that's how they find their way to you and that you may not find anything but frustration in a normal job application or in this uh, you may have submitted an application somewhere and then you're getting the texting in an economy where the unemployment's so low maybe this could be a path to a job but this is where the hazard comes in because as this becomes a thing that people are trying to recruit or screen potential employees by text, you know there's also going to be the crooks that are going to use this as a way to try to separate you from your information or from your money. So be very careful if you do respond to any employment text in what information you do cough up If it turns out who you're actually texting with or what you're texting with is a scammer, a con artist, or who knows what, instead of an actual real employer. I wish I could hit you with certain check marks how you could tell. Unfortunately, many times you can't, which is why the dividing line should be how much personal information you disclose in these texts. John joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, John. Hey, Clark. Good afternoon, sir. How are you? Great. I hope you're doing well. I am surviving. I've got the three children syndrome, and they're all pecking at Dad's uh, heels wanting a, an automobile, and I need the Clarkster's advice. So the the weird thing, how old are your three? I've got children that are twins. Uh, They are 15, going on 16, and my oldest is now 17. So what you will discover is that the cost of the vehicle you buy is not the big expense. It's going to be the insurance that goes with it. That's right. The total cost of ownership. Right. And with with a kid, I can tell you, when my teenager went off to college... My auto insurance dropped $4,300, I think is the amount. Okay. That's a lot of money. That's significant. Absolutely. And so it, it is one of the hardest parts to consider is, uh, you know, it used to be that when I answered a question from a dad or a mom about a vehicle for a new driver, it was always along the lines of what vehicles would be the safest, what would be at a price point you could handle and all that and now instead i start at the insurance angle are you at all worried about the insurance side or do you just want to talk vehicle no uh i'd like to to discuss the total picture i agree with you 100 uh the the automobile is only one component of the equation uh and the you know the, i look at it as there's there's three components the cost of the vehicle and then the, the total cost, which is the insurance, annual maintenance, things of that nature. So, no, I, I would love to look at the entire picture. So are you thinking of one vehicle the three of them will share, or are you thinking uh, along the lines of two or three vehicles? Uh, two. I already have one that's bought and paid for. It's a Chevrolet Malibu. It's my personal vehicle I'll uh, actually provide to my daughter and son, both of them could care less about what they drive as, as long as it's uh, safe and, uh, and you know, reliable. Uh, however, I do, I do have a daughter that uh, 
is uh, definitely one of the keep up with the Joneses, and, and she wants something a little more uh, prim and proper, if you will. That's too bad, <laughs> because because she's not writing the check. Uh, yeah. Uh, great thinkers think alike, Clark. Yeah, so, so you know, a teenager's hierarchy of vehicles is, I want this, oh, I can't have that. Well, I'd want this, well, I can't have that. Can I have anything to drive? So you got to get her to the third step. Yes, exactly. And that's what she gets. And Consumer Reports and the Center for Auto Safety both provide advice about which vehicles are going to be the safest for a teen driver to have. And there's been so many advances with safety features in the last five years that my old advice about just making sure you buy a vehicle that uh, has electronic stability control is really not sufficient anymore. Okay. Unless the budget is really tight you want a vehicle that has lane departure warning has um, front avoidance collision those two things in particular okay yeah that that definitely will be a little more advanced than what uh, i was thinking budgetarily and and so budget is key and so if budget is where you need to live the advantage if you buy an older used vehicle is that you may not need to buy anything but collision coverage on it. Correct. And if you do that, then just go with my baseline of a vehicle that has electronic stability control. But before you go a step further, do you deal with an insurer that you deal with an agent or do you call a toll-free number? Uh, we have a local agent. Uh, I won't... I won't name names of companies, but it starts with an A. Okay, so you have an Allstate agent. Have you talked? Okay, thank with, you. Have you talked with the Allstate agent about what's going to be the most cost-effective way to insure your teens? I have not. Have not uh, crossed that path yet. That's no. first, believe it or not. Okay. Because depending on how rates are set by Allstate and how they set in your state, it will determine. It help you determine whether you want a vehicle that is assigned to a kid, whether it should be owned by that kid, or it should be just a household vehicle that each of your three drivers, young drivers, are allowed to operate, but none of them have it as their principal vehicle. Okay. So they can assist with uh, guidance on structure. Right, because that that's where... Uh, you don't want to get yourself in a situation where you bought a vehicle and say, okay, so now I need to insure it. You want to do the reverse, find out what the insurance consequences are going to be in each method of handling teen drivers. And the ones who don't care about it, do you live, I've got to ask you this, do you live in a um, rural area, John, or do you live in an urban area? No, no, we're in, we're in Dallas. So if you're in Dallas... You may consider what I'm doing with my teenager now, and that is she gets around by Uber and Lyft, which turned out to be cheaper than insuring her. Okay. All right. Fair enough. And that's just a thought. Um, A lot of teenagers don't really care that much about driving, and you may be able to save money doing that. Steve is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Steve. Hi. Hi. How's it going? How are you doing, Clark? Great, oh, thank it's going you. All right. 
Well, Steve, you are uh, somebody who's got a, a brilliant technology mind, I gather. I hope so. <laughs> what you up to? Um, I wanted to know, um, like, where could I go? Where would be the best place to um, submit a, like a app idea? Because I do have one, but I don't. With all the different uh, venues they might have and all the scams, I'm just kind of wishy one. Where should I go? Okay, so are you? Is it just an idea for an app, or have you developed it? No, it's just an idea. Okay, so you'll need to go a step beyond, and you'll need to look at developing your own app. And one of the places I like for you to look is Udacity, U-D-A-C-I-T-Y. Say that again, please. U-D-A-C-I-T-Y. U-D-A-C-I-T-Y dot com. Okay. And they have a a program that will walk you through how to create your app from an idea to develop it to how you're going to market it. Okay. And they do it for iPhone and Android. And it's very well thought out. You may find you don't have the skills or you may find you do to take it forward and develop it but with apps the big thing is uh, you don't just go share your idea with somebody you've got to make it happen ah i understand yeah that's why i was kind of skittish on going forth (laughs) yeah but see that's why i want you to look at udacity right and and, i will i definitely will and see if you can make it come alive the big problem with an app is not developing it it's with the millions of apps out there standing out in the marketplace right and that is the really hard part but one step at a time okay oh of course of course i surely do appreciate all what you do and i do appreciate you uh giving me a call thank you well best to you thank you Today's Clark Rageous moment is something that absolutely infuriates me, and that is when your private banking information or brokerage information ends up in the hands of people breaking the law. It's today's Clark Rage. Scams, ripoffs, outrages. It's a Clark Rageous moment. I am stunned to share with you that something that I talked about on the show last decade is an even bigger problem now, apparently, than it was when I talked about it back in, it must have been like 07, 08, somewhere in there. And it's this. You think that your banking information is private. Federal law passed back in the 90s says your banking information is private. But you can find on social media, you can find on the web, company after company that says they can get you the banking information and balances of anybody you want. And the banks, under the law, are not supposed to give that information to anybody except you yourself as the account holder or if they're hit with a court order. So the banks have been so sloppy about this that private detectives and what are called information brokers are willy-nilly able 
to get your bank balance and your account numbers. An investigation done by the Atlanta Journal-Constitution found that this is a problem all over the country that people's private information is not being kept private. And the banks just shrug their shoulders. This is not okay. This is a criminal act on the part of these private detectives and data brokers, and they need to be shut down, period, engaging in this kind of activity. As for the banks, I know they've got procedures they have to follow for everything, but this problem with them allowing people to impersonate you and get at your money is an absolute Clark rage, because you get the if then, right? Once you have somebody's account number and you know their balance, it is incredibly easy for a criminal to then, with a bank draft presented to that same bank, steal your money. And this is not okay. I wish I had an ironclad way for you to protect yourself. I don't. And that's why this is a Clark rage. This is something that the banks themselves have got to fix. And if they don't, The regulators should make them. Glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show, where it's about you learning ways to keep more of what you make. Do you know that one of the big problems that happened last decade when the housing market turned was so many people mid-last decade did cash-out refinances, cash-out refis? Well, today, new data out from one of the federal agencies that backs the housing market, finds that more than 80% of refis being done right now are for cash outs. Now, this is like weird. It's like history repeating itself to an extent. And cash out refis are something that can be really, really ugly for your wallet today. So many people in the years following the housing bust took out mortgages at unprecedented low rates. I even have from time to time callers who have a mortgage that starts with a two, but very common that I'll hear from somebody who has a mortgage that starts with a three. Today, you do a cash out refi, your first digit might be a five. So you're taking ultra-low-cost money, kicking it to the curb, refining your remaining mortgage balance into an interest rate that could be significantly higher, and reducing the equity you have in your home by doing a cash-out. And everybody always has a good reason for why in their particular situation they're doing a cash-out. Seldom, though, do those reasons stand a true test of time? Because you eliminate a cushion in your life and you create risk. As an example, one of the common reasons people will take out a cash-out refi is they're faced with high-interest credit card debt. And they're sitting there with a home that's moved up nicely in value, maybe since they bought it. They have equity sitting there And they're like, hmm, I should do this cash-out refi, and then I'm going to take 
the credit cards I'm paying 17% on and I'm going to reduce them down to five point something. And in isolation, that sounds like a good idea. Why wouldn't it be? Well, when you dump the financing you already have, you're going to have significant expenses doing the refi. So that's money just down the toilet. And you're going to raise the interest rate you're paying. And because you're doing a cash out, you're going to increase your monthly payment. And how long are you increasing that monthly payment for? Let's say you've been in your home five years. So you have 25 years left at a payment what it is today at the low interest rate you got. You replace it with a new 30-year loan that may well have a higher payment and you have less wiggle room in your life because you've significantly reduced the equity in your home. Now, I know that a lot of people will go ahead and do the cash-out refi anyway, but I want to do that thing, angel, devil, angel, devil, on your shoulders. I want you thinking about that before you proceed with doing that cash-out refi. Should you really be doing it? Are you solving a problem? Or are you actually potentially causing a bigger one? Most of the time, what looks good in the short term doesn't play so well longer term. John joins us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, John. Hi, how you doing? Great, thank you, John. What's going on? Well, MasterCard sent me a new card and it has this uh, tap and go thing on it. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I'm I'm curious if that's a if that's bad. So tap and go is taking over the industry because a lot of businesses that do a lot of low dollar transactions are really being hurt by the chip. Because when you you I assume have a card right now, a MasterCard that has the chip in it. Yes, I have a card with a chip. Mm-hmm. So the chip is taking so long to verify and issue an approval that it's causing lines to slow down at retailers and at restaurants. So the solution that Visa and MasterCard are bringing to the market are the cards that a lot of people have them and aren't even aware they have them, John. They have the three little half circles on them. That are, that are together, and that's what signifies that the card can be a tap card. And so more and more places have the technology where you can just tap the card on the device and, and it clears, it approves in a fraction of the time that it takes a chip card to read. So uh, what part of it worries you, and I'll tell you where it worries me. Well, where... It gets close to a reader, and I get charged for something I wasn't supposed to. So uh, I don't know that that could happen. You have well, to. They warned, they, they warned me about that when they sent the, the stuff. They, you know, if you've got more than one card, be sure you just get one of them close to the reader. So yeah, I, I have never, charged. I've never heard. I assume that could happen, but I've never heard of that happening. But mm-hmm. when you, when you put, when you tap the card, it actually has to sit there for. Uh, like a second and a half, I guess, and reads it and goes forward. But the solution is to have what's known as an RFID wallet. Oh, boy. 
<laughs> I, you know, I didn't even want to say it because I was worried I was going to get a reaction like that from you. So, <laughs> well, I knew that was coming. So, an RFID wallet keeps the signal from traveling outside your wallet, which mm-hmm. is the other worry is that if a criminal is using some kind of sniffer that can read the the signal and they're able to capture your credit card number, that is potentially a larger worry than a stray charge because it wouldn't charge both cards in the scenario that they said to you in that that uh, flyer from MasterCard that came with the card. It would Correct. maybe charge a different card than the one you wanted to be charged, but it would not double charge you at one of the terminals. So there's still a potential security risk. There is the security risk. It's it's like what's going on. Have you heard the stuff with the car keys? That they the ones that are the fobs that emit a signal that mm-hmm. criminals now can use a sniffer and duplicate your key. Oh, really? Yeah. So every one of these conveniences, every technology opens up a vulnerability potentially for a criminal who wants to gain an illegal advantage or improper advantage. Well, is it possible to find a card that, that, you know, a person will give you a card without the tap feature? Oh, yeah. A lot of issuers do not issue cards with tap. And you may be able with your, whoever issues your MasterCard, you may be able to have that feature turned off. No, I call them. And they won't turn it off? Oh, no, we can't do that. Okay, that's a very helpful company, isn't it? Well, I knew when they when they bought out my other company, I knew that I was going to probably have problems. Well, if you've been gobbled up into a giant bank, the answer may be going to a credit union or a small local bank. Mm-hmm. And then you have people, instead of telling you why you can't do what you want to do, that they're making you do that you can go somewhere where they're like, well, how can we help you today? What can we do, John, for you? And John, guess what? We got another John who has a question for me. Hi, how you doing, John? Hi, Clark. I'm doing fine. Thank you. John, how can I be of service to you? Well, I bumped into a process that, to me, is an outright abuse of data privacy related to my car and my car use. Um. I got a letter about a month ago from my car insurance underwriters claiming or accusing me that I'm driving more annually than my car is rated for. And this is just flat out not true. And besides being annoying, it got my curiosity of how could they possibly come to this false conclusion. So um, I was irate with my agent and he put me in touch with the underwriting, someone from underwriting, and I found out through that process that every time my car goes into the dealer, there's reporting through some mechanism that they get the odometer reading, and I'm not sure what all else gets reported, through what I'll call an automotive data aggregator. Oh, uh, well, uh, Carfax or any of the car services will have extensive data now on every time a vehicle has an oil change, every time it goes in for any kind of maintenance or repair, and the date and the odometer reading at that time? Well, I looked over the information I signed for 
the car may, and I certainly didn't give a release or know that that kind of data was being um, sold to this data aggregator who then in turn sold it to my car insurance company. Yeah, and the car, so all this is part of what the auto insurance industry is really interested in, which is going a step further, and that's to full telematics, where they track every mile you drive, when you're driving it, how you accelerate, how you brake, and all that. You probably have heard of those devices. Yeah, and when I spoke to the underwriter, I said, if this is an attempt to get me to use one of those um those devices in the data port, I said, I'm going to a different uh, different company. I've been with these folks for 20 years and never had a claim. And when they send me a letter, and I'll read from one sentence, the calculated estimate of your expected annual mileage based on available verification information is greater than the low annual mileage threshold for the rate you were being charged. That's okay, so, so let, me, let me tell you something I want you to do. Take your anger and use it to go shop other auto insurers. And the reason I want you to do it is one of the practices now in the auto insurance business with many auto insurers, I won't say all, but with many of them, is they now do a loyalty index score on you. And the more you show a pattern of loyalty in your general life or with them as a customer, the more they're going to bump up your rates. So loyalty in the auto insurance business is usually punished, not rewarded. And so I would, if I were you, I would go shop around and see if you can get, uh, for the same exact coverage, if you can do better elsewhere and you may surprise yourself that this nasty gram you got from your auto insurer may end up saving you a lot of money. Well, I'll definitely do that. It's it's curious, but I do put my whole book of my whole PNC book of business out for review every two or three years. And fortunately or unfortunately, the carrier that I'm with, who has my whole book, does come back collectively the lowest premium for all three all three sets of policies. But I'll uh, I'll do that again. Well, first of all. I am so impressed with you, I can't stand it, because I never hear from anybody who's as methodical as you are about, and for people who don't know what that term meant, property and casualty insurance, which is homeowners and auto principally, that you methodically shop it uh, on a basis like that puts you in a unique category that is very unusual and very impressive. Thanks. I thought I, I thought that loyalty would be rewarded. <laughs> Not in this case. But. No, no. Except if you are shopping like you are, and they really are uh, cheaper than other people, then then it looks like your shopping has validated that there's a reason you're with the insurer you're with. But normally, you will do better by shopping around. Don is with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hi, Don. Uh, hello, Clark. How are you doing today? Great. Thank you, Don. You have an unusual question for me. Well, I appreciate all the information you pass on regarding uh, credit card companies, privacy, big data. And I'm kind of fighting back a little bit in that um, I'd like to use a fictitious name with a credit card. Uh, I'm kind of thinking some of the celebrities, they use this when they check into hotels, right? 
And I understand as long as you're not doing it for fraudulent purposes, this is okay. Just wanted to get your take. Uh, You were educating me because I have never heard that people could use and also known as, or, or, you know, a uh, substitute name, whatever, in lieu of their real name on a credit card. And that's fascinating to me. I've read about it. And again, I mean, you hear about these celebrities going into hotels and they're not checking in under their own names. Well, well, but the uh, thing was, okay. Out of, as an authorized user. So let me tell you something about um, celebrities. Oh, and that's a, that's a very clever way to do it is with authorized user because many issuers won't even ask a social security number. So yes, you right. could do that potentially, but you know, a hotel is always going to ask you and everywhere I go, at least, maybe I look like a shifty character, they always ask to see a, a state-issued picture ID right. and the credit card. And I watch, they most of the time check one against the other. Okay. So, well, um, that is that is really interesting. Now, you know, one thing about celebrities, a huge percent of celebrities the name you know them at is not their real name. Sure. So they can travel with pretty much anonymity, at least in terms of paper trail, depending on how well known they are and how likely people are to recognize them on site. But by having one name in their public life and a real name in their private life, they're able to stay below the radar just like you're talking about and they don't even right. have to put a fake name on the card. But your idea well, of authorized user is a very clever workaround for things other than most any time else, anywhere else, you would be using a credit card, except the example you gave, which I don't think would work, is that thing at a hotel. Well, there's other, uh, like, B&Bs, other places, maybe some online accounts. You know, this whole big data thing and privacy to me is just getting so out of hand. Um, everybody wants so much information. No doubt, no doubt. And it, that information a, repeatedly, I mean, it's almost weekly, a report comes out about how that information is being misused. And so yes. I understand where you're coming from on this. And maybe someone will, listening will have a suggestion specifically how to get done what you want to do. I'd love to hear it. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at Clark.com and ClarkDeals.com.